1: Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Aleem Mahaber, your host for this episode. In this episode, we are grateful to be joined by A.J. Fass, who obtained his PhD in Anthropology from the University of South Florida. He is currently an Associate Professor and Graduate Coordinator at San Jose State University in California, where he studies disasters, environmental crises, and displacement and resettlement. He focuses on the anthropology of the state, post-colonialism, cooperation, and reciprocity, economic anthropology, organizations, and bureaucracy, and the politics of nature, culture, and memory. His most recent book is the one that we're featuring on the episode today, and that is In the Shan- in the Shadow of Tungurawa, Disaster Politics in Highland, Ecuador, published by Rutgers University Press in 2023. A very, very warm welcome to the podcast, AJ. Very happy to be talking to you and really excited about the conversation we're about to have. Thank you, Aleem. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so very much for having me. Happy to hear that um, you're glad to be here. So first off, um, this is a question I most often ask um, guests at the start. Could you please tell me a little bit more about yourself in your own words, I guess going a bit beyond what I just said in the intro, you know, your personal story, how you came to be who you are today, and what experiences prompted you or rather inspired you to write the book we're talking about?
0: Oh. Good gravy. That's a wonderful question. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, I suppose I'm not alone in having an awful lot of twists and turns in that story. Um, uh, so i want to try and give, uh, the, the not too long version of that. Uh, so, uh, I grew up in uh, New Jersey in the United States, um, in a, a working class suburb of, uh, New York city, uh, And I was, uh, um, always sort of, um, drawn to, um, philosophy and social science and stuff like that as a, as a teenager. And, um, but I was, I was definitely not, uh, Uh, destined um, to be a scholar by any means. I was a first-generation college student and uh, something I didn't really think I would do uh, straight out of uh, high school, and I didn't. Um, I actually began uh, my undergraduate studies when I was just about to turn 22. Uh, And uh, I began that work um, as I was a musician, actually, and I started out with an interest in ethnomusicology. Uh, and and that's what I th- thought I would do. And, and, and even that's like a, kind of an oversimplification. I was studying West African and Caribbean percussion ensemble and American folk music, and I enjoyed playing music a great deal. And when I finally got around to um, applying to my undergraduate, I was like, well, what am I going to study? What's the major I'm applying to? Uh, and um, uh, my girlfriend, who was an important mentor of mine, uh, my girlfriend at the time, was like, well, you know, all this stuff you read about the music um, that you study, you know, I noticed that a lot of these books are by anthropologists. And I was like, huh, okay, maybe that's it. Um, and, uh, and so I applied, I went to Montclair State University uh, in New Jersey. Um, And uh, where there weren't any ethnomusicologists Um, and, uh, but there was a great focus on uh, applied anthropology, on urban anthropology, and particularly on uh, the anthropology of poverty. And I had a lot of uh, several terrific um, professors and mentors there um, who really uh, honed my focus and helped me develop a focus uh, on initially the anthropology of poverty. Uh, Homelessness, uh, not homelessness, sorry, um, but housing. And uh, I did my, I went on to do a master's thesis uh, in that program that was on uh, anti racist tenants organizing to resist uh, gentrification in Montclair, New Jersey. And um, that was a really wonderful experience of working with um, community, grassroots community-based organizations, working on campus community partnerships to help support community-based efforts. Uh, and that really inspired me to think about um, solidarity, um, cooperation, uh, anti-racist work, and, and to really think that like the work that was, you know, this academic work of, of anthropology actually could um, contribute something and we could actually do something in, in, in uh, what some people call sort of real world problems. Uh, I always put scare quotes around that as if the work we do at university is not the real world. But um, and, and so that really got me excited. And, and I worked in uh, practice for a few years after finishing that Master's degree, and I um, was um, a uh, coordinator at this uh, organization for campus community partnerships. So I was able to, I got some great experiences sort of facilitating the types of connections that I had um, and that helped me find purpose as an undergraduate and as a graduate student, helping connect professors and students and community-based organizations and public organizations and nonprofits to do really interesting uh, work. And for a few years, I did that, and I was still looking for a little bit of a a greater purpose. And uh, after some exploration and considering different avenues of uh, a career I would pursue uh, beyond that, uh, I wound up looking very seriously at the University of South Florida and uh, because it was renowned as an applied anthropology program and uh at the time i had sort of left my positions i was living in mexico in michoacan mexico and i applied to the graduate program and i was accepted i had a vague interest in sort of continuing to do something like the work i was doing resisting displacement and resettlement Uh, And to work in Latin America, I had to come to live in Mexico and and fallen in love with it. Um, And that's where I thought I would work. And uh, I was accepted to the program and I was accepted as a graduate research assistant um, under uh, the PI, uh, Dr. Linda Whiteford at the University of South Florida, where I was also mentored by geographer Graham Tobin uh, and uh, some other scholars at the University of North Carolina Who were working on studies of disasters uh, and communities uh, adapting to chronic hazards in Mexico, specifically around the volcano Popocatepetl? Now, I was very excited to be working in Mexico, but I, these were, uh, Linda Whitford was a medical anthropologist, something I found interesting, but it really wasn't um, uh, what I was interested in doing myself. Uh, I, they were working on disasters and hazards, which is what wasn't something I'd really thought about or or felt as an interest before, but here we were in Mexico and I was excited and delighted to be doing it and, and to be there. And I figured I'd find my purpose eventually. Well, these folks, um, mentored me, uh, very well and very effectively. And, um, we had, um, a great time working around chronic hazards with indigenous Nahua communities in Mexico and working with community-based uh, organizations there and some public organizations. And around that time, uh, the volcano Tungurawa, which is the subject of our book and our discussion today, erupted for the second time in seven years uh, and led to widespread um, displacement. And, and soon afterwards, they... Uh, announced a set of resettlements and my advisor Linda Whiteford had actually gotten her start in working on disasters uh, in Ecuador when she was there working on other projects in the 90s when Tungurahua had erupted the first time. And uh, I've been mentored by some other folks, I had read some other key works that really got me thinking, uh, I think critically, but also creatively uh, about these types of problems. And uh, so right around when I was getting ready to do my dissertation in 2007 and 2008, when I was going to get started on this, uh, took me a while. Um, And... uh, Linda Whiteford and others had partnered with the Ministry of Public Health and with the uh, Geophysics Institute, the Instituto Geophysico in Ecuador, uh, where they had longstanding relationships in Penipe, uh, which is the canton where all my work took place. Uh, and I went there to look critically at how they were going to. It was a really baffling question. I mean, it remains so. This is something I've been working on uh, now for um Decades, um, and it's still very much an open-ended and very fraught question. Like, how do you rebuild and remake life after such an upheaval? How do you resettle and recreate like community, society, culture, livelihoods? Um, and I went there. I'm very, very much interested in working with the community uh, organizations, the the cabildos, the village councils, um, and working um, to uh, facilitate. Um, cooperation between them and the uh, Instituto Geofisico and other humanitarian organizations that were working in the area, and so that's the that's really skipping over a lot of, of twists and turns that were meaningful um, to my journey here. But that's that's the long and short of it. And I've been there. I'm I'm very happy. Um, You may notice that throughout the book, you know, I don't use sort of that older, stale anthropological language of like my informants this or my research participants that I I frequently refer to people as my friends. And um, I mean that sincerely. Um, That's not necessarily true of everyone. I don't I don't use it um, flippantly. Um, There are some people I did know primarily in in a research context, in a research role, but many of the people... Um, that you see featured in the book are people that um,
1: I, uh, to this day, maintain relationships with
0: and consider my friends.
1: Well, thanks for that um, introduction. And that's something I definitely picked up on when I was reading the book, you know, calling the the studies participants friends. Um, Coming from a background myself, as a bit more quantitative or at least mixed methods in nature. I never really saw someone or other researchers use the word friend to refer to a participant. It's kind of jarring to me. We kind of tend to keep those boundaries well maintained. But um, I'm wondering if you could expand on the reason for this choice in terminology you mentioned. It was, in many ways, um, they were really your friends, and you you treated and considered your participants as real friends. but I, I'm wondering if, if it was reflective of a particular methodological strategy. And do you think this choice or mind or mindset it helped with gathering um, more maybe um more rich data or more meaningful data for your research? Um I I don't know. I
0: I, I thank you for the question. Um and I don't I don't know that um, I can really speak to that as a, as a research strategy, I mean, I think it's something that I just, I arrived at organically, if such a thing can be true. Um, I, I mean, you know, I mean, the way I was trained as an anthropologist, you know, uh, it's not uncommon to, to hear people say that, you know, that empathy is key uh, in the work that you do, that that your, your body, your person, your subjectivity is your research tool, right? Um, and I think that, building relationships, like just sincerely, I mean, I was in Penipe where people were going through some real hardships and, and I try not to make a spectacle of that, but I try to tell the truth about it as best I can throughout here. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I would go and visit with people Uh, I think it's you know Donna Haraway likes to talk about going visiting and I think it's really just a lovely thing a lovely way to think about this type of work Um, I didn't always just bust out the recorder or bust out my research instrument or just start taking notes I mean sometimes people would just tell me their stories and I just wanted to be present for them um, as as a human being as an empathetic human being I was just being you know, um, I wasn't thinking. Boy, this is a way to get some great data, uh, and um, and so uh, you know, and and it's not uncommon for me. You know, when I'm giving talks about this stuff, and particularly when I'm telling relating people's narratives, it's not uncommon for me to get quite emotional, um, and and I think sometimes that makes people uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable too. I don't plan it, um, and. Um, but it's like, you know, these are these are my friends. Some of them are like my aunts and uncles. Some of them are like, you know, um, like adoptive parents to me. Um, and so it's it's not a put on. It's just, it's just, it's true. Um, and a lot of times I sit and listen to people. And if and if a narrative came up and I thought it was really important to record for the larger work, you know, I would tell somebody, like, okay, um, You said some, you know, after we talked and we're just, you know, people and and maybe held each other's hands or or hugged at some point in the course of this. um, uh, If I thought it was something that was significant in a research way, I would ask people like, can I come back, you know, tomorrow or can I come back later um, to record this story? Because you just told me a really something really meaningful that I think other people um, would benefit um, from hearing. I think it paints a picture of what folks are going through here. So could I come back another day because it's important to me to capture this in your words, right? Um, and so that's how I would do it frequently. I would come back and record and you know, lightning doesn't often strike twice, right? but um, but um, but again, I mean, people were just being truthful and and um, I think vulnerable with me. and uh, and so I, I was able to to capture people's narratives i think um empathetically and and faithfully uh in that way and i I should say also that you know it came from i was reading uh my dear friend and frequent accomplice uh elizabeth marino her book um fierce climate sacred ground um came out uh in early 2016. and uh it's a wonderful book and she refers um to her collaborators and her friends uh, on the island of Shishmaref in Alaska, as friends, uh, and I think it was really in in reading her work and in discussing her work with her um, that really made me realize that I had permission to do that. I don't know that I that I, that that I knew that I even could say friends, um, and so I think she opened, she expanded those possibilities for me and likely a great many other people.
1: Well, I I think it was great. I think um those are possibilities I might need to look into with my own you know research. Um, that sort of engagement I think was um, uh, it it, it shows in, in your work and and um, your work itself I, I it, fe- it feels to be a product you know of uh, the people of Penipe and what they feel and you really um do a good job of you know capturing um you know, what they want and their desires, and it's a really um, human-focused and people-centered approach I see you took with the book. Um, Do you think you saw that come out as well? Was that a conscious choice? Uh, Well, yes. Um,
0: I I hope so. I hope it does. I mean, I I know I use some pretty dense, like, theoretical language sometimes, and I try not to... I try not to let that get in the way, right? I mean, I, I was trying to do that purposefully uh, as well. But you know, something something I say early on in the, I, I believe in the preface to the book is that you know, I, I I really wanted to let as many people's stories live as just stories on the page. Um, and I know that there's a lot of other people who do that better than me without getting some of the other sort of dense verbiage in the way. Um, I know some people forego that more than I do, but um, so I, I wanted to do faithful narratives. But I, I think that the importance—I know you didn't ask me this, but I'm volunteering this part as an answer. I think uh, I, I think that the importance of what we often call theory um, is um, has a lot to do with coming up with language that helps us connect different cases in different places. You know, I mean. I could, I could make this, I can, you know, actually very easily, um, you know, dissolve myself and my work in, in this, uh, interview in this podcast and, and talk almost entirely about everyone else's work, right. That I really wanted to put these cases in conversation with, right. Um, to, to show, um, shared patterns and also to maybe, uh, make some interventions in how we think about certain things. Um, but it's, you know, it helps when we say things. Like, for example, politics of deservingness is a concept I use frequently throughout the book, um, and and that's going on in disasters and displacement and resettlement around the world. It gives us a joint vocabulary for talking about these these patterns that crosscut different sites, and and I think emboldens us to to think critically and realize that this is that these are um, serious issues that transcend any one given uh, place. Um, and I also liken it to you know a bit like bringing a, a a a new friend to a party where they don't know anyone like it's 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 incumbent upon me to to introduce them to others right to put this to write this with purpose um to realize that that these are part of you know larger and broader networks of of experiences in
1: the world and i just want to say the stories um about the people of benipe it goes what you talk about i i also realize it goes beyond just you know one person's or or the community's lifetimes you know um you focus mainly on the major eruptions of tungurua that happened in 1999 2006 but you also dive deep into the history um of that area i think going back to even pre-columbian times um so I, i found that really interesting so i'm wondering if you could share with the listening audience a bit of this history why you know exploring that was important to shed a light um, on the why was it important to shed a light on these socio-historical circumstances going that far back in time um, when talking about fairly recent disaster events? Oh, well, that's a
0: great question. Um, and, uh, and I could really set off widely in a, in a great number of directions to try to address it. Um, the, the short answer, although I don't actually use this term um, in the... Book. Um, my my a big part of my method is um, what is often called genealogical, uh, in the sense that I find in what's going on in the ethnographic present, um, while I'm there, you know, um, living among people, uh, the folks of Pinipe, you know, going through experiencing these disasters, this displacement and resettlement, that the pasts or, or multiple pasts, plural. Uh, are very much alive in the present, you know, and that, so it was, it was a lot about like, you know, sort of what's going on here. Um, and, uh, even, you know, as I reached out to other scholars, um, and researchers and activists, um, in the region when I was doing this work, uh, and I was saying, am I, am I finding something new here? Like, uh, you know, the whole second part of the book is really devoted to Minga cooperation and stuff like that. Like, is this new that that Minga is organized by the state and that the government organizes people into Minga? And these very, very patient people were like, you know, very nicely sort of pointing me to to the reams and reams of texts and histories about this was a central institution, right, of of the Incan state, of the Spanish state, of uh, uh, you know the, the Spanish colonial reign, um, and those the types of rules, the types of discourses, uh, the types of practices um, are that, that were forged in these colonial contexts and these imperialist contexts in the early modern context of the, the independent. Um, but not, you know, fully decolonized in any sense, uh, Ecuadorian state. Um, uh, that these these were very present, right? And um, and and that that wasn't. That these weren't just like you know community based rules. Uh, although I do, you know, ab- along along the way, try and disentangle that a little bit to find, you know, what people do outside of the state or in resistance to the state in different ways, um, and it's also, you know, maybe it's also just a long-winded way of trying to answer the question: Well, why would anyone live on a volcano? Um, right? I mean, uh, and and so uh, and so, I wanted to. I really wanted. Uh, readers to understand and appreciate that there is um, a a very real history of power, of colonization, um, of subjugation um, that uh, brings people um, and settles people in a very rigid uh, way um, so that their uh, land and labor can be expropriated um, in in the colonial sense. Um, and then you know, later on in a sort of you know, um, capitalist sense as that sort of takes shape over the course of the 20th century in the region. Um, and and how these arrangements produce disaster. You know, we we typically mistake uh the disaster for the hazard, right? So we'll talk about oh, this hurricane as this disaster, right? Or this eruption as this disaster, or this um uh you know earthquake as i sit here in california right as the disaster Um, and uh you know i mean the volcano at the end of the day is just doing its job you know um and um it's this this became disastrous right due to very particular arrangements of human populations of human politics of human economy of human ecology and i wanted to show critically how that was made Um, and how that, that was being repeated in the present, um, very, very, uh, you know, the rules that were used to settle and resettle people in the wake of the disaster, um, which continued, which actually, um, this is, these weren't post-disaster resettlements in the sense of happening after the disaster was over, but more in the sense of after it had begun, um, and uh, and and the disaster was still very much um, a part of people's lives in the resettlement because the rules of, the rules governing how people were settled, how people's labor was accounted for. Um, how their um, residency was enforced, how their movement in the area was enforced. Um, It bears a heck of a lot in common with how people were settled and came to settle there in the first place. Uh, And that this was instituted and reinstituted by the state, the colonial and subsequently post-colonial state, um, something that's awkward to speak about in the singular, because I do try to unpack that as a sort of multifaceted thing in the course of the book. Um, and that uh, these scripts, these rules um, and these settlement patterns were, were very consistent with it, remarkably and unsettlingly. Um, so so I, I think that was my purpose, I think, in doing a lot of it was how is disaster made in society? And, and, and you can see a long history of, of how people were set up for that. Um, you can see a long history of how people resisted that, how people adapted to that. But you also, uh, along the course of this, find that you know, people also had deep and abiding, developed, and, and maintained, um, and, and continued to aspire to very deep and abiding relationships with the land, with the landscape, uh, with the volcano herself, um, long known uh, as Mama, Mother Tungurawa, um, and uh, no spoilers, but over the course of the book, she does age uh, along with her grandchildren to become the grandmother. Um, so that's right. So she becomes Abuela Tungurawa, um, which is fascinating and, and quite touching. So, um, again, this is this is not just, uh, you know, a history of, of subjugation, but I mean, colonization is a core theme of this. Um, and, uh, and it is still very much present in people's lives in the present now. And I wanted to show how that happened, where it came from, but also to show that people um, have also real deep um, place attachment. And, it's, and it even goes beyond that. I use awkward terms like, you know, assemblages and whatnot um, to talk about these really, you know, heterogeneous sort of um, networks of connection between people and other people, between their land, between their landscape, between their crops, their animals, the, the volcano, um, with practices and traditions like Minga, um, and even in the end in cooking tortillas.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, I think a major theme um, ties into what he said: well, the historical reproduction of disaster. And in the book, we uh, I saw how um, you know recovery efforts—you know—it endured for years and years, and it ended up reproducing um, the inequalities um, that were often, you know, um, as you say, co constitutive of disaster you know, in the first place and, and, and in the name of helping. So I, I'm wondering if you could bring it back more to the present day. In what ways did this reproduction, you know, manifest in Pinipe following the 1999 and 2006 eruptions? Sure.
0: Uh, yeah, that's a large Part of it, you know, and so if what we were just talking about um, was something that in disaster studies is, is frequently called vulnerability, right? That's the long historical production of disaster, but of also of, you know, creative agency and resistance is sort of part of that, right. It's that, you know, people aren't just sort of passive victims of power. Um, and, and I talk about, you know, you know, the sort of tension between, you know, power, state power and, and local agency throughout the book. Um, and, uh, like I said, a lot of those themes that settled the place were, a. a, a or that were central to the settlement of the place, uh, in the first place were, were also central to, um, recovery and resettlement. Um, and, you know, I use terms like, um, procedural vulnerability, a term that was introduced um, by Siri Voland, uh, some years ago and i think it's really really great because if if the first part you know the history of the production of this is vulnerability procedural vulnerability uh is is something like doing good badly uh and that doesn't even do it justice either because you know what constitutes good right is a very contested uh notion as well uh and and so you know uh people the the Penipe and the and the villages of Penipe were, were sort of forcibly settled in these colonial processes and people were forced to, you know, live on a grid and be enumerated and be accountable to these, you know, colonial bureaucracies. And then when they built these resettlements, um, they had very strict, um, uh, criteria of, uh, deservingness, which is another term I use a lot in there. Um, and so, I mean, and they really, um, you know, sort of policed people and in, in just in selecting who would be, um, uh, resettled in these different resettlements. There were three, uh, main ones that I focus on. Um, and, you know they did these surveys and and people who were recorded you know sometimes a lot of times they couldn't even find the people because people were still in shelters and improvised shelters even years after the eruptions uh living in makeshift shelters living um sometimes you know doubling tripling quadrupling up in rooms with relatives in nearby towns and cities and other villages uh and a neighbor you know was just asked by a passing um uh, uh, government official, like, you know, where is so and so? We can't find them at their house, which had been, you know, destroyed in the eruptions. And it's like, oh, they're living in Riobamba. And so they were just marked living in Riobamba, case closed. Uh, and that's a, a nearby city. And, uh, and people were not living, you know, like uh, of their own accord. A lot of times, and, and that's documented throughout the book as I follow people on their travels during these, you know, prolonged years long displacements. Um, They were very much still tied to their home villages in Penipe and wanted to get back. Uh, And then in order to do so, they had to be legible, right? Like they had to be present and accounted for in a place where it was not possible, right? Um, So there's this sorting of this bureaucratic sort of sorting of the deserving from the undeserving. And then when they finally create these resettlements, with the exception of one, they're all landless resettlements. Now, these folks were... um, uh, small holding that means small plots of land. Um, Agropastoralists, what in the region is known as a campesino, um, and that's the term I use in here. Campesinos, you know, live off the land. They produce. Uh, they take sometimes small bits to market, but uh, they live off of what they grow and the animals they raise. And now they were placed in these landless resettlements on urban grids. Uh, and and to a person, they're all grateful for this, and they're happy that they have it, but they can't live there, so they would have to move uh, and travel to their lands, back up on the volcano. No one was required to forfeit their lands, and that's where they were farming. Uh, or Or maybe they weren't able to do that because of too much ash, because the volcano was still erupting this whole time, lower level eruptions up to 2016. So I often ask people to wrap their heads around that, like imagine a situation where the best thing you have going for is to try and grow crops on a still erupting volcano. I mean, that's what a bind people were in, right? Uh uh, but it's also what they aspired to because this this um, these places were just bare life. I mean, it's where they could go and they had four walls and a roof, but they had nothing else. They didn't have community life. They didn't have um, their lands. They didn't have their neighbors like they used to. Life was completely reordered according to the prerogatives of these humanitarian uh, organizations of the state and people who were gone for periods of time, if they were gone, because they'd go up to their lands. And of course, the roads and the bridges were out. So it would take them so much longer to commute back and forth. And sometimes they'd stay a few days up on their lands before coming back down to the resettlement house. And then, you know, after a while, they would come back down to find eviction notices on their door. And or sometimes they'd be commuting to the city for wage labor, which almost everyone said was a, a short term Strategy just to be able to feed their families until they can find a viable alternative to get back to farming, and uh, and now they're being you know visited in the in the evening um, by uh, you know officials who are checking to see that they are occupying these houses full time. So they're being subjected to the same type of settlement pressures, the same type of, you know, what I call legibility borrowing from James Scott. Um, It's the same patterns of legibility, of forced settlement, of being accountable to uh, the state where the state wants to see them uh, and uh, sort of put in place. Um, And it's not, this is um, really hostile to their livelihoods and to their lives. If people were there day and night, they wouldn't be able to um, take care of themselves. They wouldn't be able to feed themselves. Um, and, you know, quite frankly, they wouldn't be able to find anything approaching the joy that they found. And I don't want to idealize village life. Um, you know, it was full of hardships and different types of conflict there, too. Um, but people were were quite vocal uh, about the joys that they, you know, um, found and the attachments that they had to their um, communities, both the human and, and the, and the very much more than human communities that they had. So as they try to move and, and mobility has long been as a very central livelihood strategy, going back to before colonization in the Spanish, in the Spanish period. Um, and it's been a, a, a very key part of people's livelihood strategies in the Andes for quite some time. Uh, and a very key theme in how they were governed historically has been this repeated hostility to this mobility. Mobility is not legible enough. We need to have you accounted for in place. Uh, and those same types of logics were being imposed on people time and time again. Uh, and this is repeated also in um, how people were also expected to be present um, for um, the labor parties, which are, which are called mingas and mingas one term, and I suspect we'll get into it. It's one term, but it actually refers to a lot of different arrangements, depending on sort of who's running the show. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, I mean, that's the long and short of it. Right. And there's, there's a lot of other themes in there that I connect it to, you know, Penipe was created as a modern political, you know, uh, a jurisdiction in the 1980s, but it never had the urban center that was required by the constitution. So you can look at these resettlements that grow the, the center by, uh, 200, almost 300%, um, as, as attempts to, um, you know, buttress. This, this urbanization and this um, uh, political legitimacy of Panipe, uh, It really, you know, what was going on there was hooking up into a lot of um, uh, political projects um, in Penipe and in Ecuador more broadly. And I just try to draw those connections as as faithfully as I can, and not in some abstract sort of arbitrary way, like this is the history and it's just one darn thing after another. But um, it was always working back from what I saw in people's lives. And it was like, sort of like, where's this coming from? Where is this political pressure coming from? What is what is this um, political practice, you know, sort of predicated on, whether it's enforcing settlement, or it's enforcing a certain type of participation in a labor party, or whether it's enforcing, you know, occupation, or Or being present in a certain place to be, you know, uh, deemed deserving of aid. Um, It was always working back from what was in the present. Um, It's a very tricky thing to write to 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 do that um, because you're constantly ping ponging, ping ponging back and forth, and you risk losing or frustrating your readers as you do so. But
1: well, let me say I was not frustrated at all reading your book, and you did a good job at um, ping ponging back and forth. I, uh, In terms of your writing, um, I, I, i re- a lot of your ideas, um, especially um, and you mentioned it just now, um, what we refer to as bear life, and in the um, basically um, the recovery efforts, essentially you, know, you reproducing that for a lot of people is something that was really resonant for me. You know, just um, with a lot of the disaster recovery and humanitarian administration of aid in the Caribbean, in the global south where I am, a lot of it is wanting and really not truly meeting people's needs, you know, to enable and empower them to have a meaningful and sustainable life post disaster, you know? Um, so I, I want to just put that out there. And, um,
0: I thank you so much. No, that just warms my heart. If it, if it, if it worked at all for even one reader, <laughs> thank you so much.
1: <laughs> I'm sure it's more than just one, but yeah, there's a lot to unpack what you just said. Um, Many different points um, we could go down on, but I want to talk about minga, and I think I remember you saying in the book how you came to regard it as an institution, and I think it's um it's very unique at least maybe in a modern Western context. Uh, could you explain exactly what minga is, um its history, as you talk about it in the book, um also the um, you know, complex and sometimes conflicting dynamics of its practice in, in Pinipe, in times of disaster?
0: Well, I, I could do my best. Um, I, I, I But I have to, to, just in the interest of managing expectations, I can't explain exactly what Minga is, uh, you know, because that's something that that continues to elude me. It's, it's really got creative and productive dynamics and boundaries to it. Um, and uh and in fact you know when i would interview people after working many mingas and so in its simplest sense in its simplest sense a minga is a collective work party Uh, and it is one of many indigenous traditions of cooperative and collective work parties throughout the americas that um, not only predate the spanish empire but you know uh, predate the other uh, pre-Columbian empires like the Incas and Aztecs and, and Mayas and etc. Um, and so, minga basically uh, it can be practiced in different ways. Um, when we talk about it as a, a community level practice, uh, we think you know some of the earliest evidence that we find of it is you know village leaders uh, organizing work parties. Uh, it might have been for collective infrastructure. Right, like irrigation, right, which is a central theme of the book, and and it's a, a vital to agriculture in the Andean highlands uh, and elsewhere in Ecuador. Um, and so, to get people to build and maintain this collective infrastructure, you know, village leaders would organize. Um, usually, it was uh, historically it has changed more recently, but historically, it was it was male labor. Um, and for something like an irrigation canal, uh, one uh, male labor, adult male laborer from each household would have to come and give a, a day's work alongside everyone else. And typically the work would have been led by a, uh, a village leader who worked alongside people and typically set the pace of work. Uh, they might um, benefit uh, a little bit you know, disproportionately from time to time, maybe they have more lands. And so they get more out of the irrigation from others, but, uh, it wasn't a gross sort of inequality as we understand it back in that time period. It could also be a type of exchange labor or, or, or labor rotation. So, um, today, uh, you and I would, and, and a dozen of our neighbors would work, um, to, um, say, do the labor of planting or harvesting on your lands. Right, and so for there was me and a dozen others, and you would owe each of us a day of work. We came and worked on your land, and it might not be tomorrow, it might not be next week or next month, uh, but um, we sort of maintain these expectations. for For every person' days' work that you receive, you also have to give that back, um, and so people would rotate from land to to land to um, help with harvests and stuff like that. Um, And the Inca really um, sort of stabilized this or or systematized this um, on a much larger scale. Um, And so this is how they incorporated um, new um, groups into the empire, which was by requiring them to labor now on state infrastructure, the famous Incan roads and, and the storehouses and whatnot. And this is how uh, the Inca sort of produced uh, the infrastructure of their empire. Uh, and it's important to say that because it did become a state and empire project And the, uh, under the Inca, and the Inca would reciprocate by granting people back essentially the fruits of their labor, right? They gave them back the storehouses that protected them against famine, right? They gave them back the roads and trade routes, right? So they reciprocated sort of in kind um, and sometimes there would be wealthier people they would have. It was very ceremonial. You know, sometimes even with the Inca, I mean, there was a lot of chicha, which is like a corn maize beer uh, and a lot of ceremony in these reciprocity. Or sometimes we would all work on a large landholders land, but there would be a big fiesta at the end and we'd all come home with a share of the, of the harvest or something like that. So it was this sort of festive reciprocity as well um but the spanish really catalyzed it and i don't want to get too much into the weeds on that i do that more than enough in the book but to suffice it to say that the 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 spanish systematized this as a near genocidal form of labor um it literally using words and i relate some of the archives in there about we're going to throw this many indians into the mines and they have really pressed people into unsustainable um and often deadly uh labor and they used minga um and uh, they, they very consciously adopted that from the Incas as a way to subordinate, as the way to keep legible. They turned it into like a head tax um, and everyone was accountable, right, for a certain amount of, of days. Uh, and later on, they became labor quotas, what are called tareas. Uh, and and so you know fast forward there were a lot of different projects involving minga minga was central to the spanish Empire right up until the end and it was central to the independent ecuadorian state right from the beginning and right up to the present although it's been transformed in lots of ways but you know what i don't want to be lost in this conversation the 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 state um sort of um, conscription of minga labor, um, should not, and I try, I, I try mightily in the book not to let it, even as I want to help readers understand how this works, because again, it is very present in the, in the ethnographic present of the book. Um, I don't want to get lost that people still use it and practice it and love it and speak about it as the, um, as the, one of the core values of their community, of their society, of their culture. They refer to Minga as the solidarity of the people. And that should not ever be lost in, in my discussion of power and state and colonization. Uh, I don't think either one of those should be lost because I find both of those... Um, discourses of Minga very much alive in the present and 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 in tension with one another in very very surprising and I think revealing ways um, and so uh, and, and and there's a there's a particular way of entering this conversation from the perspective of disaster studies too because disaster studies asks particular questions about cooperation and disaster and perhaps we can come back to that in a moment to finish my answer to your first question though um, So minga is something in the resettlements, again, this goes right back to what you asked me before about like, you know, why labor through all this history, you know, in the context of an ethnography that you're doing in real time? Well, in the resettlements, people were required in two of the resettlements, people were required by the resettlement agencies to do minga labor to build the houses, to build the roads, to build the irrigation, to build the potable water canals, to build the parks, to build the community infrastructure. And this seems wonderful, right? I mean, if you've ever sort of looked at a development project or something like this, and you thought, you know, what they really need to be doing is working through local cultural, traditional practices, et cetera. At first blush, it's just like, oh, here's a place where they're really doing it. And I do believe that a lot of people entered into this as a good faith attempt to do that. Um, But, you know, part of what I was calling procedural vulnerability, um, you know, how we replicate these historical relations in the process of humanitarianism, you know, it's a bit like, you know, habits of the heart, right? We keep playing these roles. We fall into these roles of, you know, uh, these very colonial uh, roles and relations, right? And so people were, if you go to a Minga in the village of Monsanto, that features prominently in my book, it sounds like those old Mingas I was telling you about where a village leader says we're all going to get together and everyone's going to work each to their ability from about eight in the morning until two in the afternoon. And, and the leaders working alongside, and now we've got adults, it's able-bodied adults, men, women, um, and, uh, and occasionally gringo anthropologists like myself. I spent my time working Mingas in all of these villages. That was very key to my practice, uh, and my, you know, methodology but also just building relationships with people and and that's how it worked in Monsanto and you were they did keep track of your attendance but it was more reputational you know it's not like you're you're not getting uh you know sanctioned for every missed minga or something like this at the village level but you know if you don't reliably come over time then that's going to affect you rep- you know uh, reputationally right yeah. um, that's going to affect your inclusion in in village affairs um But in the in the resettlements, this was strictly counted and they not only counted your attendance, um, and and this was set by uh, professionals in one village by engineers uh, who were guiding the creation of a new irrigation canal. Important and an important contribution. But folks worked according to the engineer schedule Monday through Friday, nine to five which was often hostile to their their own livelihoods and their own livelihood needs. And they had labor quotas and they actually called them tareas. Uh, I don't want to make too much of that because tarea is just the word for task. But uh, it's it's worth noting that that was the term used in the colonial period and the hacienda economy when people were pressed into uh, minga labor service. Uh, so it's a common, but it's not incidental, right? That, that there are these, these um, very um, colonial arrangements where you, where you have the state not reciprocating the way that the Inca would or a village leader would, right? Setting strict rules um, for people's um, time and labor. Um, and it was very strictly accounted. And if you're missing one tarea, then you're in jeopardy of losing access to, to your house or to your irrigation, water um and stuff like that so it was very strictly accounted for and including in one instance for a while it was being recorded on excel spreadsheets uh not just yeah um uh, not just on uh you know the the sort of notebooks that the village leaders typically kept their tallies of attendance on so it's different things at any different moment people are talking about minga as one thing as the pride of the community Uh, And it was funny because I was working on Mingas for a while and I would start interviewing people more and more. And I found that even sometimes I entered the story uh, because I would say, like, well, tell me what is Minga and tell me about Minga and what is this? You know, just give me a grand tour of what is Minga, you know, for people who aren't familiar. And, of course, people would look at me and they had seen me laboring in Mingas for months and sometimes years. And they'd say, a Minga is a Minga. You were there yesterday and um and so at one point at one point in 2011 i had a graduate student helping me as a research assistant and she was conducting some interviews uh and i said look you have to, you have to conduct some of these interviews because you know people are looking at me like what are you dumb a minga is a minga. and. a uh, and so she came back laughing one day because she said I entered the story even when she did the interviews. There, a lot of people call me Alberto, and and she would say I asked somebody what a minga is, and, and they said it's when we get a shovel and a pickaxe, and Alberto comes and we go work on the irrigation canal. And and I thought that was so funny because um, it was such a it was really such a taken for granted thing. It's something that people speak of. As they say, we do collective labor. It's not each for their own, right? We're not selfish and and individualistic like people in the cities or in America. And people will say that very often that it is a pride, is a source of pride and a cultural value. Um, so in in sometimes it does stand out and people do remark about it. Um, and sometimes it's a, a place, a context for. Um, Uh, the exercise of power and resistance between villagers and and the state who is controlling it. But what's so interesting, the last thing I'll say about this, um, there are other a great many things to be said about it, but the last thing I'll say about it is what's really interesting is that once the state, whether it's a humanitarian organization, a government organization, a a nominally non-governmental organization that nonetheless does a lot of governing of people's everyday lives, What's, what's remarkable, as soon as you start calling it Minga, then you are actually entering into a discourse of which, you know, collective accountability and fairness is central to that discourse, you know, because it has been since prior to any sort of colonization and since then. Um, and and people really hold people accountable for this fairness. So when, when the state says we're doing minga, you better rest assured that every last villager is keeping a watchful eye and speaking up vocally um, if they see any um, any imbalance, right? In, in fairness, and you know, I did my labor, and this is these are my rights, right? This is um, this is how we're all expected um, to give equally in this process. Um, And so uh, it was a way for the state um, actually to be held accountable. The power is still quite unequal, of course, Um, but there are very interesting ways. And I tell a great many stories in the course of the book um, where you see Minga not just as a tool of colonization of the campesinos, but how the campesinos actually use it to hold the state accountable frequently as well.
1: Yeah, um, there's a lot um, that we could discuss there. Um, I, I could say i um, just reflecting on my own reading. Um, what you wrote about Minga, I was often, you know, conflicted myself. I kept ask, asking myself, hmm, "Is this? This sounds pretty exploitative." In other ways, it was empowering to the people um, who practice it. So, I, but I guess, as you said, it, you know, it's um, different things, and it depends on the context in which it was practiced. Um but yeah, a, a lot of interesting dynamics with um minga mingas there. And just to tie in what you said before, um the do mingas relate to what you talk about when you say um the politics of deservingness, Um could you elaborate on the connection there?
0: Sure. Um yeah, uh, well yeah. That's a good question to ask because I think that's one of the few questions here where I can give a a really straightforward answer. Um, and, uh, and like I said, you know, Minga was always central to the politics of deservingness in these villages, you know, and, and let's just say since way, way back, um, you know, because it was Minga is how they build both the, um, physical infrastructure of community, so the roads, the bridges, the, the farms, the irrigation, the water, um, and it's also how they build, you know, essentially the, the human commons, right? It is, um, it's, it's central to your, um, you know, belongingness in the community, right? It's central to your good standing in the community right? If your household reliably and regularly participates in these community affairs from which the community benefits. And there's ways of holding you accountable. You know, in the, in the first order of enforcement is, uh, you know, it's usually gossip, right? Uh, and it's, you know, so much story about so-and-so doesn't do their part, right? And you know that there's different levels of gossip. There's the gossip that you don't hear about you right? And then if it gets bad enough, you'll start to even hear the gossip about you, right? And then all of a sudden, you're like, all right, something's got to change, right? Because that, that doesn't feel good. Um, and, uh, and if it rises above gossip, you know, I mean, it was uh, historically um, a way of, you know, allocating scarce resources. So if your household is not participating in um, Minga for irrigation, then you're going to find your eligibility for irrigation in uh, jeopardy over time. But there's at the village level, I do just want to emphasize that there's a fair amount of like flexibility, there's opportunity to make things up, you know behind you can make things up if your reputation has taken a hit or maybe if there's a family hardship or an extenuating circumstances like you know village leaders because we're talking about villages of you know 30 and 40 and 52 houses in monsano for example uh these are not very very large villages so the um you know, the village leaders are remarkably accountable to each and every person in the village, you know, um, this is never, this isn't like statistical administration, you know, this is very much like face to face. Right. Um, and so the village leaders are adaptable and responsible to people. If there's a hardship, you know, this is less the case when you have a minga that is, um, administered by the state, right. And, uh, by these, um, Again, governmental or nominally non-governmental organizations that require you to labor, and they and and require to labor in, uh, in in fulfilling tasks that they set. You know, and some of these tareas, I did a tarea one time, this labor quota, where we had to dig a trench. Each household, right, so typically one laborer had to dig a trench for this irrigation canal, one meter deep one meter wide, and 10 meters long, okay? Those are dimensions that are going to baffle any American listeners, but that's like digging three graves in a row, right? And 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 this is all happening at 3,000 meters of altitude, mind you. Um, something exceptionally difficult for this gringo anthropologist doing the work. Um, and uh, it, it was grueling, backbreaking work. And there were some I, I barely did it in the course of a day uh, myself and I was, I mean, I was just a wreck uh, afterwards and stairs and the backache and you name it. And um, you know, when there were a couple of young uh, able-bodied, you know, farm working uh, men who were, you know, finished this by noon or one o'clock and there were some people who kept, it took them three days or more and they had to keep coming back or they had to bring in other family members or they had to had dig into their, you know, scarce, um, uh, you know, household funds to, to pay an extra laborer to help them do it. So by saying an equal task like that for everyone, if you think that's fairness, it doesn't actually check out that way, right? Because it actually, it costs some households much more to do that. Um, and so the politics of deserving this, right? When, you're, when, you're, when your um, household is, um, you know, tareas and participation in mingas is being tracked by, you know, Excel spreadsheets, uh, and if you fall behind and if you can't keep pace with that type of work, right, then the politics of deservingness is, is much more exacting, right? It's much more unsustainable. It's much more physically painful, um, and costly in so many different ways and a source of stress for a lot of people, um, and so, when we're talking about the politics of deserving this, you're talking about like on the one hand, in everyday life, right? We we have to make decisions based on on need or suffering or something like this. There's always a politics in terms of, you know, to borrow an old phrase, who gets what, where, and when. Um, there's always a certain politics of that, and by calling it politics, it doesn't mean that it's mean or nasty, um, but sometimes it's kind of brutal, and and. That's, that's what I try to highlight, right? I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not that the very notion of standards of deservingness is, is somehow, you know, uh, uh, unethical or something, um, but you see a very exacting politics of deservingness. And it actually, it, it falls into other things, because again, a lot of times people had a hard time fulfilling their minga obligations to the state, especially because they were away working jobs. And in the city for the day and the engineer shows up on a Tuesday, right? It wasn't spontaneous. They would schedule it in advance, but they would say, we're going to do this minga from 8 to uh, 4 p.m. to do this tarea on Tuesday and you're working a job, right? And so now all of a sudden, like by working wage labor, you're actually edged out of this. And again, for most people, we're doing wage labor as a temporary alternative until they could get back to farming, but they were never going to get back to farming if they weren't able to fulfill their Minga responsibilities, right? So actually scaled out, right? Because it just it just wasn't it wasn't just one resource. It's a, it's a whole other reason for my use, sometimes exasperating of terms like assemblages, um, because um, it's it's never just one thing. It's never like is the water on or off. Like we're talking about like these these downstream and complex sort of uh, effects. Right, of your deserving this here is going to affect the viability of your whole livelihood, of your community standing, of your reputation, of the water flow to your lands, of your livelihoods, of your joy, of your return to place, all of these things. Um, so, yeah, uh, that's why I use those terms because it's just too much to say all that over and over and over again. The book would have been. Thanks for that. Uh, one
1: of the things um, you also mentioned, in some ways, uh the people also you know engage in ideas strategies and movements to sort of adapt to the circumstances and even resist um you know official policy of the governmental and non-governmental organizations when it came to their resettlement um i'm wondering if you could talk about this in relation to the returner movement and combi beer uh, which i think it later evolved into you know what were residents of Pinipe attempting to do in the articulation and practice of these movements? And you know, what were their impacts?
0: Oh boy. Cool. Uh so um yeah, the you know, the the third well, you see um the return or el retorno as they refer to it, and then ultimately convivir. You can see it. Taking with the right pair of eyes, if, you know, if you're if if you're brave enough to try and read it again, you know, you can see it as a secret protagonist here and there throughout parts one and two of the book, um, but it really takes shape in part three um, as people themselves really had a name for it. So, you know, the return, the retorno, was you know, village leaders and and villagers really deciding when realizing that they didn't have. Any more than, uh, or, or, or little more at best, than, than bare biological life in these resettlements, um, they started returning to their villages, which I think were, no one wanted to ever give up their attachment to their villages. But the, the, the future of collective life, of this whole sort of assemblage of life between neighbors and animals and land and volcano and minga and these other types of joy, um, the, um, I, I don't think anyone was ever wanted to give it up. I mean, most of the book is about people trying to work their way back to that. Right. But it did take shape into a concerted movement that we're not just going to live by night in the resettlement and farm by day in the old villages, um, that we are actually going to reanimate and rebuild community life. And it begins with Minga's and the first Minga I worked on, uh, in, uh, which comes up in, uh, I believe chapter five of the book, um, enduring Mingas. Uh, and people are very, very excited to be doing Mingas back in the home villages and in their home parishes of Puebla. Um, and, and so it was about, you know, not just that we're doing our own thing, you know, each household getting by, but it's like that we're actually rebuilding community and communal life. We're rebuilding the village councils. We're rebuilding the Casa Comunales that, um, uh, the village meeting houses, um, we're rebuilding the irrigation, we're rebuilding the roads, we're rebuilding the schools, and we're coming back. And, you know, one of the most wonderful and really sort of tear-jerking things I, I ever participated in Pinipe was in 2009, when they had their first um, Saints uh, fiestas uh, in, um, in Penipe, uh, or in Puebla in the, in the parish of Puebla, but this happened in a lot of the parishes in the region where they had their first saints fiestas in a decade, right? This is a big annual celebration and people came in, uh, weeping. I mean, so many people were, were just weeping, but also just so happy to be back and doing this again. And I, and I share in the book, some of the Mingas to make that happen. Um, but Convivir, Convivir is, um, I, you know, it's something that I, I, I even struggle to make sense of at the end of the book. It's something that you can talk about in so many different ways. But, uh, you know, if it seems like I'm imposing a, um, you know, a, a, a disciplinary or a scholarly language uh, on, on this by talking about, you know, nature culture and assemblages this and assemblages that, Condivir is actually the indigenous term for the assemblage is, is one way to think of it, right? um, which I think typically if you were going to translate that in the English, um, people would, depending on the context, would translate it commonly as coexisting, but it literally translates to co-living. And that's precisely, um, I, I think what is intended when people say that. Um, and, um, And what it is about is it's about saying, like, we're not, it's not just that we have returned, it's that we're not leaving. It is this collective of our neighbors, of our heritage, of our village, of our land, of our animals, of our grandmother. And and it is really the emergence of the term convivir and, and the aging of Tumurawa to grandmother. Uh, that emerge really alongside one another. Uh, and, and I noticed them about the same time that people start using this language. And, um, you know, there's this beautiful mosaic in the, in the nearby town of Baños, uh, dedicated to convivir, where it's written on the bottom, jamás fuera de nuestras tierras, porque siempre hemos vivido con el volcán. Right? We'll never leave our lands again because we've always co-lived with the volcano right it is a sense that the disaster happened this whole disaster was our it was the was the result of this upheaval it's the result of our evacuation our reset our displacement and our resettlement that we have lost our lives and that we have suffered they're saying we will develop an adaptive relationship with this volcano because it's what we've had for centuries um and I'm not trying to romanticize that. Right. And and neither are my friends in Pinipe, um, because uh, they'll tell you they know very well that there's work to do. And they're not trying to ignore the danger. As a matter of fact, they've got these whole brigades of um, volcano uh, monitors um, connected by radios from village to village, and they connect with the... Um, uh, the Instituto Geofísico and the volcanologists and seismologists there—they're uh, connected with emergency response. They have evacuation operations in place. But to leave, to resettle, to to move to the city again, um, this is a collective uh, articulation that that no, that they're they're here to stay, and and they really want to make that viable for the future. And it's it's a very very um, inspiring. Uh, it's it's very very unsettling uh, because you know, I've been there during the eruptions. I'm not going to lie; like you get rattled, but the folks there don't get rattled like I get rattled. And they're and they're happy to point out they don't get rattled when they when the military is deployed and the civil defense is deployed in that region. They never tire of these tough telling stories about these tough military men getting rattled and getting scared every time they hear. It. Uh, They're accustomed to it and they know a a quotidian rattle from a death rattle and and they're working to build these viable futures uh, and on their terms, right? So it's their way of articulating that this is a more than human community. And it's not just about the volcano they name the volcano because no one's ever told them you can't live next door to your cousin or no one's ever told them that you can't do minga or you can't farm they've made it awfully hard for them to do so in these resettlements no one's ever told them they can't but a lot of people have told them that you can't live with a volcano so that's the that's the relationship that is they typically have to defend more than the others um but they are of a set Um, and so convivir is the vocabulary that people use you know, I started out saying something like nature culture assemblage more than human assemblage. Convivir is the words that they've articulated for it. And and it's a very much a future building project. Um, and I should add, not to romanticize it, you know, it's not everybody. You know, I talked about at the end of the book that the the villages are aging, you know, there is still out migration of the young. Um, and that's that's one of the many challenges in addition to, you know, um, you know, safety and emergency preparedness and, you know, and farming and climate and there's, there's a great many things you know, uh, there's a great many challenges on the horizon for the people, uh, of Penipe, but,
1: uh, Convivir is their way of saying, like, we can do this. AJ, I think that's a powerful note, uh, that we can end on. Unfortunately, we're nearing the end of time for the interview. Um, So you're going to have to start wrapping up. So is at this point, I'll ask, you know, what's next for you? Are you hoping to build on the ideas you explored in the book in any way? Is there any new material you're currently working on that you'd like to share at this point in time and anything at all you would like to bring attention to?
0: Thank you so very much. Um, That, uh, yeah, um, well, uh, I want to, um, call, uh, you know, attention, uh, uh, to my friends, uh, in Penipe, um, and, you know, there's, there's no, um, one foundation or institution that is working directly to support different, um, community-based and, uh, and development projects in Penipe. Um, I welcome anyone. I answer every email. So I welcome anyone to reach out to me. And I'm, I'm always happy to, to facilitate connections there. There are a lot of great creative initiatives that are going on, and there are different ways of supporting people. Um, and so I wish I could say go to this website and you can help people out uh, there. The villagers are trying to uh, invite, you know, varieties of ecotourism into the region. Part of the region was recently dedicated, uh, designated as a um, Eco Parque Nacional, like a, like a nature park, nature conservancy type of thing. And people are, are hoping that that's going to attract, you know, sort of hikers and campers and and uh, patrons of their food stalls and restaurants. And and some people have little posadas, little inns up in the region. And I think it's one of the most beautiful places uh, I've ever had the good fortune to visit. So visit Penipe, visit my friends, um, reach out to me and I'll help uh, make connections there. Um, And uh, as for my work, I'm always a little bit uncertain uh, because, you know, I'll be working on one publication and then that one gets put on the back burner as I work on others. Um, So uh, I have some new stuff going on right now. I'm working on uh, memorials and memory, on disaster memorials uh, in the United States and in China. I'm working very closely with the Japanese American Museum of San Jose to look at The memorialization of um, Japanese incarceration, uh, World War II, um, and my students and I are working with a lot of community-based organizations here to um, work with heritage communities on memory, memorialization, and community-based museums. Uh, And I'm also working with a lot of graduate students and and with some partners, um, including at the U.S. Geological Survey and many community-based organizations here in the San Francisco Bay Area to develop, um, sometimes I call it uh, participatory, sometimes I call it community science. I'm trying to emphasize both aspects of it, but these are participatory, community-based Uh, vulnerability, disaster vulnerability, and hazard assessments here in the Bay Area, looking at how different communities are affected, how different communities are prepared um, by hazards, by vulnerabilities, and disasters, and and fostering the development of um, creative um, uh, collaboration, um, right, um, to to work, you know, against the sort of vulnerabilities in our society, um, and, and to, uh, work at the community level to address things as best we can. So, uh, that's it, you know, I have some other book projects in the works and some other things, uh, with some collaborators, but, uh, you know, I, I hate to mention them now, I and mean, it, it takes me another six years to finish them. So, uh, Mordecai.
1: Well, that, that sounds amazing. Um, Hopefully it doesn't take you six years, but whenever you're finished, um, I would love to have you on at another time. It was, um, fantastic, um, talking to you. I'm very grateful for your time and I'm very grateful for the, um, you know, the passion and compassion you're showing your work. And um, yeah.
0: Thank you so much. It, I can't tell you how nervous I was. And, uh, it's really been, um, uh, it's really been such a pleasant conversation and, um, I'm 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 really thankful that that you read the book, that you took an interest in the book, and the work, um, and and that your interest really guided us through um, what I think has been a, a really pleasant and, and fun conversation. Thank you very much.
1: Well, and I want to just thank you again for being so patient and flexible. Um, yeah, behind the scenes, you know, there are a lot of delays to get this conversation actually, you know, started, but we did it and we got it done. So I'm happy we were able to do that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> in disasters how am i gonna <laughs> impatient if you know stuff comes
0: up uh so yeah. my pleasure thank you so much
1: and just before we say our final goodbyes um please let everyone know where they can find your book and you know where they can find out more about you
0: okay thank you um i i uh, The book can be found um, at all your major booksellers, but I encourage you to um, purchase it directly from Rutgers University Press uh, in the shadow of Tungurahua, directly at Rutgers University Press. Um, There are um, still uh, discounts there, I think, available. Um, And so that's where you can find that. You can find me uh, at San Jose State University. It's SJSU dot edu forward slash anthropology. And you can find me under the faculty there. Uh, I am on social media uh, uh, at AJ Foss. A as an Apple J as in James F like Frank two A's and an S like Sam on Twitter. Uh, I don't tweet very much, but uh, I do. <laughs> I do just uh, sort of read other people and, and occasionally communicate with folks in the DMs. So uh, yeah, feel free to reach out to me, and I answer every email and DM. So uh, I'm always happy to talk to folks about this.
1: All right. Well, thanks again uh, for having this conversation, and yeah. I'll- Just wishing you all the best, man. Uh, Take care. Goodbye.
0: Right back, Ashley. Goodbye.